We're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8, and then Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified and that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And now reading from Ephesians. For this reason I kneel before the Father, whom, whom from, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Kaya. That was wonderful. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all again on this uh, bittersweet occasion. It's the third and final sermon. Uh, in our little mini doctrinal series on the personal work of God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can have your Bible open where you like. Ephesians 3 is not a bad place, but being a topical series, we will be uh, jumping all over the shop. Let me lead us briefly in prayer and we'll get stuck into it together. Uh, we thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that we can gather this morning to consider uh, what you say to us in your word. Please uh, change and transform us by the power of your Spirit at work within us, that we might become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, will you be content when you're in the nursing home? Will you be content in the nursing home? It's a question that assumes, or at least when I say it, it's a question that assumes that you'll get to the stage where you've lived beyond the national average and have enough of your mind functioning to appreciate whether or not you are content. But should you come to the point where you have the mixed blessing of knowing that death is slowly rather than instantly approaching, uh, and when all the trimmings and trappings of life, as you now know it, are stripped away and it's just you on the proverbial deathbed or in the nursing home, as I like to say, uh, will you be content? It is devastatingly sad, and I've seen this myself, uh, that for some people in the, uh, the nursing home, whether literal or metaphoric, uh, when the props of life are stripped away, there can be a very bitter and cold person that remains... 
a person who may have even been considered successful in their life and their career, and yet who on reflection has a long trail of broken relationships behind them, a life filled with regrets, for which there's no longer any kind of worldly distraction, any prop to keep them sort of buoyed in their spirit. Will that be you? Will that be me? Uh, the only auntie that I have who's a Christian many years ago was in a nursing home, I think that time visiting a mum, I can't remember, and she, um, uh, she was speaking to me afterwards and she said, you know, there was this elderly lady there who, though fairly immobile, just exuded joy and contentment. She was smiling, she was chatty like a pig in the mud. And my auntie's throwaway comment was, I bet that lady was a Christian. And I remember thinking at the time, hang on, how you, is it a bit stupid to assess the spiritual status of some person that you've only had like a very short time with and just incidentally? But then upon reflection, I thought, well, A, my auntie is one of those really annoying people who's really perceptive and right about most things. You know those people, right? Yeah, they're annoying. And uh, B, the first three things listed as the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy and peace. And it's the same Spirit by which our hope for an eternity with Christ is guaranteed, so I don't know, maybe she was right. But whether she was right, in wrong, right or wrong, sorry, if I make it to the nursing home, literal or metaphoric, what's it going to be for me? What's it going to be for you? Will I be content? Or will I realise that this whole life I've had has just been buoyed by props and when they're all taken away and it's me by myself facing God with my mortality, am I going to be a horrible, bitter person? Hold that thought, it's going to become relevant today is in our third and final instalment of our mini doctrine series on the person and work of God the Holy Spirit. We look at the Spirit in relation to sanctification. Remember the first week we've looked at the Spirit uh, in terms of His work in salvation and then last week in terms of revelation, this week in terms of sanctification. If you don't want to know what that word means, to be sanctified is to be made holy in the sight of God. The Spirit makes us holy by applying the merits of Jesus directly to the individual sinner. Yet the goal of sanctification includes progressive conformity to the image of Jesus. The Spirit makes us holy and therefore, in cooperation with His work and through His empowering, we continually become holy. Uh, theological nerds call this uh, positional and progressive sanctification. Uh, if you're a theological nerd, you might know that there's some argument about whether or not progressive sanctification is a good enough term to describe this, but I don't care about that. It, it makes sense, right? Uh, in the long term, progressive sanctification, which of course relies upon positional sanctification, makes a world, a huge world of difference in our lives and therefore is seen, very sort of extreme, uh, in the proverbial nursing home or deathbed uh, of us. Now, to begin learning about the Spirit's work in sanctification, it might help to appreciate one of the big differences in how God the Spirit has chosen to operate on either side of the ministry of Jesus, uh, namely that His indwelling has gone from being provisional to now being permanent. 
Uh, it so happens I preached this series a while back at our Harrington Park and Night Church, and one of the big questions that arose uh, from the, uh, the talks was, what's the difference between the personal work of God the Holy Spirit in the people of God prior to Jesus and post-Jesus? Uh, so here we go. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit seems to indwell some people, either permanently or temporarily. Whereas in the New Testament, on this side of Jesus, it seems He only ever indwells all of God's people permanently. So how do we understand that difference? Well, a key text for understanding this comes from John chapter 7, uh, where we read, and I'll put the words on the screen, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then John gives us a little bit of a theological lesson. Uh, he reflects on Jesus' words. He says, verse 39, by this, he, Jesus, meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus has not yet, had not yet been glorified. Now, that should strike us as a bit strange because hopefully you know and I know that, well, wait a minute, the Spirit had been given. There are many times and many occasions where God the Holy Spirit did come directly on some of the people of God. So, it must be the case that there's a particular sense in which Jesus here is saying that the Spirit will be given only after He is glorified, only after He ascends to God's throne. What is that sense in which the Spirit now indwells people in a qualitatively and quantitatively different way to what He did before, particularly in the Old Testament? Here's a really easy and helpful way to think about it. When God the Father established the nation of Israel uh, and made their land a dwelling place for His name, He did so literally by living among them in a tent. Moses, the great prophet Moses, could rightly boast, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way Yahweh, our God, is near to us? whenever we pray to Him. See, God has come to live with us, He lives in a tent. And yet, it only takes a cursory read of the Old Testament to know that access into His presence was actually profoundly difficult. And eventually, on account of Israel's ongoing rebellion, God left His temple. He, uh, he broke camp and went away. When Jesus, God the Son, came into the world, which we celebrate a week from today. John's Gospel tells us he tabernacled, literally he lived in a tent. The human body was his tent, he, he tabernacled among his people. He is God veiled in flesh, as we will sing at one of the greatest hymns ever written, Hark the Herald Angels. Hence, those who were with him could be said to be in the presence of God. And yet Jesus also departed he informed his followers that it would ultimately be better if he leaves and returns to the Father, for when he does so, he will send God the Holy Spirit. The impure hearts of the Israelites meant that it was hard for them to enter the presence of the Father. The fact that Jesus chose to limit himself in time and place by taking on a human body 
and then to die for sin meant that it was better if he too would depart. But on account of his death and then his resurrection and enthronement by which God's people are now declared holy and righteous, Jesus could then freely pour out his spirit on all who have trust in him, allowing us to dwell permanently in the presence of both the Father and the Son. Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we, so Father, Son, will come and make our home with them. We will dwell with individual peoples. And that, of course, happens by the pouring out of the Spirit. The sense in which the Spirit indwells God's people now, that's different to how He may have done prior to Jesus' ascension, is that because Jesus has been glorified, saved sinners can be admitted into the permanent presence of the triune God without Him compromising His holiness. Uh, It's for that reason, and I hope you can see it already, that Christians, out of sheer delight and gratitude, can't help but want to become increasingly holy, embracing the wonderful reality that Jesus died to give. In His love and kindness, God the Spirit empowers us to do just that, to grow in holiness, both as individuals, but of course also as the body of believers. Uh, That's why we had that reading from Ephesians this morning. In the church in Ephesus, a number of Gentiles, that is non-Jews, had turned and put their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. The Apostle Paul knew that that meant they were fully-fledged members of God's eternal kingdom, along with the original Jewish believers who would also receive the exact same Holy Spirit. Paul desperately wanted to see these new Gentile Christians uh, come to appreciate just how much they'd now stand to inherit as members of God's kingdom. And so in Ephesians 3, Paul tells them what he's been praying for them. And I want us to notice what Paul assumes about the Holy Spirit as he prays for these new Gentile converts. He writes from 3.16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, together with the original Jewish church, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the the measure of all the fullness of God." Uh, just a little nerdy thing here. See the first word you there from verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you. That's in the plural, use, use people, right? To use Bergen English. But then the through the spirit in your inner being, the your there is singular. So all yous individually are indwelt by the spirit that empowers you individuals who make up the use to know this wonderful, or to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to, to, to know this love, to know not only intellectually but to, to be from in, almost relationally with this love. Paul assumes that God the Holy Spirit resides and works in the inner being or the heart of each individual Christian. His work is said to be one of strengthening or empowering, the, the word power occurs, occurs uh, twice in this prayer, And this spirit-given power is for the purpose of coming to greater and greater appreciation 
of what is already ours in Christ. It's not power, notice, to defeat sickness or to grow really, really rich. It's far more satisfying and far more important than than those sorts of things. It's power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And just for a second, I can't help but to already make a little brief point of application on this little bit of teaching alone. You see, it could very very easily be the case, I'm sure it is the case, for some of us, that you might feel like you're currently not making much, if any, progress in your Christian maturity. There's a few things, or maybe even very many things, that you lament about how your life happens to be going. If that's you, firstly, you need to know you're definitely not alone, and secondly, our God is gentle and approachable. He has graciously given you His indwelling Spirit, so that all you need to do is ask Him to do that wonderful work of bringing you increasingly into greater appreciation of what you have in Christ. The very next words that Paul writes in in this part of Ephesians are, and I'll put them on the screen, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, note the power of God is the same as the power of the Holy Spirit, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Now, of course, the Spirit who indwells every individual believer is the one and only true and living God. Hence, it's not surprising that He does His work of sanctifying not only on the individual level, but also on the the corporate level. God the Spirit is in the process of sanctifying, making holy His church, preparing the Bride of Christ for that great wedding banquet of the Lamb on the last day. Here's a fairly quick-fire run through the rest of Ephesians 4 and 5, where Paul outlines for us how it is that the Spirit empowers His church for increasing holiness. We know, and the Ephesian church knew, that when Christ ascended to the right hand of God, He poured out... Well, what's the first thing you think of? When Christ ascended, He poured out His Spirit. That's right. But Paul gives a more specific picture of what that looked like in concrete terms. Uh, That Jesus gave the ministry of the Word is the the sort of more detailed way of saying that, Uh, by which the the Spirit ultimately brings God's church to maturity. So from Ephesians 4, so Christ Himself, having ascended, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip His people for works of service, for literally for the work of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach maturity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That same word ministry given by the original apostles, prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers is the word ministry that God's church is still to this day preserving and engaging in. The Spirit who established the early church by the teaching of of those word ministries is the same spirit who continues to build and strengthen his church by the ministry of the word that they gave and which we of course now have in the scriptures. Jesus had once upon a time prayed that his followers would, uh, that, that God for his followers would sanctify them by truth after which he immediately added your word God is truth and of course when the spirit was poured out resulting in those original apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, 
so Jesus' prayer was answered. The church received God's word of truth and we've learned and applied that same word to ourselves directly and also collectively so that we continue to be sanctified as the church of God. Which leads me to say, for all of you that are sitting here this morning, here and now, good on you. Good on you for being at your Sunday church gathering. Church gatherings can on some occasions be more enjoyable, let's say, than on others. But regular meeting around the Word of God is one of the big ways that God the Holy Spirit works to progressively sanctify us. That's the big ticket item in God's book. How am I going to keep this church growing in holiness? I know, I'm going to gather them together under the Word. It's called church. That, that's a big deal for followers of Jesus. With all that said, apart from giving rise to the Word ministry, that is uh, to and for one another, how else does God the Holy Spirit work within us and within the church to see that we're increasingly sanctified? The short answer is he grows the church in holiness by inspiring and enabling us to serve one another. God the Spirit brings us to increasing holiness by inspiring and enabling us to serve one another. Just as Jesus washed the disciples' feet and said, you want to be blessed, do the same thing? Well, the Spirit He gives to all believers inspires and enables us to serve one another in love. And the Apostle Paul gave one long slab of teaching on this very topic in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. That's three big chapters, one slab of teaching. Obviously, this would easily be a whole sermon in itself, or three sermons if you like, which I would like, but so that we're not here till one in the afternoon, I'm going to do a really big crash course, the simple overview of this uh, sometimes contentious part of the Word of God. Uh, for anyone who wants, as you can see, I'm going to do some summary stuff as I go through. If you want it available, I'll give it to you after a try. But this is a, a crash course in Paul's teaching about how God the Spirit inspires and empowers us to serve one another and in that way grows the church. Here we go. Uh, I'm not going to have the Bible verses on the screen. You can be in your Bible in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, but like I said, I can make this available for you afterwards. Here we go. Paul begins 1 Corinthians 12 by saying, now about gifts of the Spirit, except he doesn't say that. Because our translators, I don't know why they do this, can't seem to help but constantly over-translate. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 does not have the word gifts. It is not part of your Bible. Cross it out in your Bible. Now about spirituals is literally how it would read. Spiritual things. There is actually no such thing as gifts of the Spirit in this part of Scripture. doesn't exist. The translators can't help themselves. Paul writes, I'll start again, chapter 12, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians... Now about spirituals, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. See, Paul knows that when it comes to spiritual things, being spiritual people or spirit-led or inspired people, he knows 
that this is an area where it is so easy for people to go wrong, to go astray. I do not want you to be uninformed, says Paul. This is important. You've got to get this bit straight, says Paul. Then he goes on to say, through the rest of that chapter, that whilst the Holy Spirit inspires and enables many kinds of service or works of service, that verse 7, and I'm reading 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That is, the Spirit works not to help me serve or edify me and serve myself. No, the Spirit is given that I may edify the many, the church. It is given for the common good, the good of everyone, not the good of the individual. And it's because it's the one Holy Spirit working through all believers to serve the church, no matter the ways in which each person serves or contributes, all members have an equally valuable contribution. Paul writes in verse 21, the same chapter, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. If you've got a head but no feet, you can't move anywhere, right? They're indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. No matter who you are, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus you by yourself are a gift for the building and sanctifying of the people of God and you are no more or less valuable than any other member of the household of God, no matter what you might think of yourself and your contribution. And then, right at the end of chapter 12, Paul totally contradicts himself. There I said it. Paul contradicts himself in the Bible, right at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just after saying that all the contributions that the Spirit empowers us to give for the common good are all equally valuable, he then says in verse 31, now eagerly desire the greater gifts and yet I will show you the most excellent way. What? You're supposed to go, hang on, you've just been telling us all that we do in the power of the Spirit to benefit the church is all equally valuable and right now you just pull the rug and say, now get the good stuff, people, get the greater stuff. He does it deliberately to grab our attention and to make us wonder what he means, which of course is why it takes us into the next section of his three-chapter teaching. In and of themselves, the many kinds of... Whoa! We decided to start working. In and of themselves, the many kinds of spiritual services, they are no better or worse than one another. What does make a difference, though, is the underlying attitude by which those works of service are exercised. Unlike some of the Corinthians who were into making themselves feel spiritually superior by what they could contribute, the most excellent way, the way that Paul cheekily tongue-in-cheek calls the greater gifts, is of course those that are shaped by love. For genuine love is always other person-centred. It doesn't seek to build me up, if it's love, 
Each seeks to build up others. It seeks to work for the common good. Paul writes in chapter 13 and verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking. So in order then to show what it looks like when this principle of love is applied to our thinking about what makes for the truly spiritual way of sanctifying the church, Paul then moves to a whole chapter where he gives a worked example. The example of what is an unloving approach to sanctifying the church versus one that is loving and therefore truly spiritual. Uh, For the example of the unloving, he uses uninterpreted tongues uh, or languages, which is self-serving and therefore unspiritual, versus the example of prophecy, which serves the church and therefore is in line with the Holy Spirit's work. So Paul writes from uh, chapter 14 and verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Now, when you first hear that, you might think, oh, that's pretty good. Anyone who speaks in a a language uh, speaks to God. But if you've actually paid any attention to what Paul has been saying for the last two chapters, you realise this is a great put-down. No one can listen to that guy. Oh, God can hear him, I suppose. It's like an insult. Who's he speaking to? Oh, he's speaking to God, right? Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit, but, by way of contrast, the one who prophesies, that is in this context, I believe, uh, speaking the, uh, the, what God has revealed, speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, i.e. selfish, unspiritual. But the one who prophesies edifies the church, i.e., for the common good, truly spiritual. Uh, I'll give you a great example. The thing that I've been most desperate and looking forward to, to teaching this congregation for the last three weeks, including today, I've finally come to the point where I can say it to you now. Are you all listening? I hope you're listening for this, ready? Amen. Why didn't you say amen? Well, someone did. Amen. Good. But did you notice how amazingly spiritual I am? No? You guys want my heart. Uh, I prayed a prayer that uh, was wrong. It's, uh, uh, I have to translate now so I don't actually contravene Scripture. <laughs> Blessed are you, our Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has commanded us to light the lights of Shabbat. It's a Jewish bracha. And it's wrong. There's no command ever given by God to light the lights of Shabbat. The second thing I said was a, a kid's song. My hat has three points, three points has my hat. If it didn't have three points, it wouldn't be my hat, right? There's my profound teaching. But it's useless. Thoroughly and utterly useless. Unless I translate it. 
It is just so easy for us to get the wrong idea about what makes for truly spiritual stuff versus what's actually unspiritually self-seeking and self-promoting. Paul says from 14 verse 22, tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, well, then I'd say you're out of your mind. I'm deeply sad and, although not at all surprised, to say that there are so many churches around that defy God precisely in this way. Even the unbelievers can see they've lost the plot. In the middle of his worked example... Paul says from verse 12, since you are eager for gifts, eh, since you are eager for spirituals, try to excel in those that build up the church. Putting this all together, I think it's fairly accurate to say, and I know it's long and convoluted, but it's a big topic, that God the Holy Spirit is on about sanctifying the church by empowering us for word ministry whether individually and corporately, and for other person-centred service. Word ministry and other person-centred service. That's where you see the personal work of God, the Holy Spirit. Following the Spirit's leading and cultivating the Spirit-filled life. Yes, we got a question mid-sermon. All right, why not? No. Uh, no, 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 uh, it is very important. Paul speaks about prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14 without giving a definition. And given that we've seen already that there is a qualitative and quantitative difference in how God the Spirit works in people this side of Jesus compared to what he did before, it should not surprise us that the, the Spirit in his main work also, uh, uh, as a, a necessary byproduct, gives a certain change. There is a difference between prophecy this side of Jesus to what there is beforehand. The parts in the Bible that do speak about it are few and far between, but in Revelation chapter something, I don't know, uh, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony about Jesus. You can Google that, it is in the Bible. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony about Jesus. There's a sense in which prophecy is revealing truth from God's Word, but given the fullest and most final revelation of God has been given in the personal work of Jesus, and that in our case, that, that canon of Scripture has been closed... I think it's fair to say that no matter what prophecy is, it must be teaching, proclaiming, explaining the Word of God. My guess is that it's done in a way that's contextually suitable or appropriate. So, let me give you a a prophecy right now. Uh, Sorry, let me give you the testimony of Jesus right now. Jesus Christ is God the Son. He came into the world. He died to pay for our sins. He was raised in glory and ascended to the right hand of God. He will return to judge the living and the dead. That is what I know from the full and final revelation of God. I've got it in the Scriptures. It includes a future element, something predictive, although I wouldn't say it's predictive. It's certain that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Uh, I couldn't have been able to say that if I lived five centuries BC, but I can say that now. 
Uh, and I do so in the power of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit has enabled me to understand and believe that, same as any other believer. Beyond that, however, I was kind of right when I first said no. There's something that the the New Testament never sort of goes into great detail and says, by the way, prophecy is X and not Y. It doesn't do that, Uh, which means at one level it can't be super important. But I think as we speak the truth in love, as we engage in those word ministries that were given by the Spirit, you could call what we do prophetic. Someone comes along and says, I'm a prophet, capital P, be a little bit worried. Uh, Oh, that all the Lord's people would have the Spirit and prophesy, says Moses. Uh, They will all know me from the least to the greatest, uh, quotes uh, Peter in his sermon in Acts uh, chapter 2. Thank you for that, though. Where was I? God the Holy Spirit is on about sanctifying the church by empowering us for word ministry and for other person-centred service. Following the Spirit's lead and cultivating the Spirit-filled life that orders your priorities in this way uh, means that I can um, revive that very cheesy, well-worn and old acronym that if you haven't heard, I'm glad to, uh, to inflict upon you now. It boils down to joy, Jesus, others, then you. And as best I can work out, that's really the way to ensure that your nursing home scenario is as thoroughly good as it can possibly be. I want to get there, if I ever make it, and look back and say that my life is one where Jesus was first. I've died, I've taken up my cross to follow him, Jesus first. And then service of others, empowered by the Holy Spirit, bringing his church into greater maturity. That was the goal, putting myself last. There's the way I will not be that bitter, angry, cranky old person. There's the way I'll be the joy-filled person. Jesus, others, yourself. Quickly, by way of implication, well, obviously, you want to have joy, you've got to be a follower of Jesus. You can't do that without receiving the indwelling Spirit. I don't know everyone here, it may be the case that God the Spirit has not yet indwelled you. I'll tell you, if uh, that's going to happen, it'll be because you've been there thinking to yourself, I really need to turn and make Jesus my Lord and Saviour. We call it conversion or becoming a follower of Jesus. I make no secret, but I think everyone and everyone should do that. You should make Jesus the Lord of your life. How do you do that? Simply tell God, God... I don't want to live with me as the boss, I want to live with Jesus as the boss. Thank you that Jesus died for my sin, I turn away from living my way, I want to follow him. Thank you that you raised him to give me new life, help me from now on to live for him. The second thing, and I suspect this concerns most if not all of us, is once upon a time we had these things called spiritual disciplines. They'd gone out the window and in one sense I can understand why, because you've got a whole... A whole lot of people thinking, oh, if I do this and do that and do that, God will be happy with me, I'll make it in heaven, right? Just ignore the gospel and bypass Jesus. I can understand why spiritual disciplines aren't the kind of the flavour of the month anymore. But I think they are really helpful and really important. Spiritual disciplines are not a thing to be balked at. Uh, There are some people who will get up every morning and read their Bible no matter what. And they put most of us to shame. There are some people who will pray through a list or a journal of prayer no matter what, right? And when you first hear about it, you think, oh, well, that that seems a bit beyond me. That seems, you know, like a bit... But then I I think, well, 
I brush my teeth on a daily basis, and I hope you do too, please, right? Even a, a two-daily basis is ideal, right? In the morning and in the night, right? And I don't particularly delight in the process. Oh, looks, oh, I've got to brush my teeth. <laughs> Let me into the bathroom, right? I never, never like that, right? Now, very occasionally, if you're being dumb and you're away on a camp and 10 people are doing it once and they're pumping music and they're singing the toothbrushing, okay, maybe it's a delightful experience, right? But that's not the way I think about it. The way I think about it is I do this day in, day out, one, because, you know, I don't want to stink, but two, it's really helpful in preventing all the nasties, right? I hate the dentist. Sorry if you're a dentist. I love you. I just, I hate the profession. I'm not talking about you, the person, right? Um... Yeah, I'm not a dentist person. Uh, so the less I can go there, the better. So in that sense, in that sense, I delight in the discipline of brushing my teeth. Now, if I can do that on a daily basis, surely in that I, I can use that same brain CPU space to put something that's spiritually beneficial, something that allows me to, to uh, live for Jesus and, and to serve his people uh, I don't know what that thing is, but I know people that go, no Bible, no breakfast. I know people that say, every time I brush my teeth, there's a little thing in the mirror that says, you know, pray for such and such a person. Spiritual discipline can be really, really good and really helpful. I'll tell you a really great spiritual discipline that you're all doing right now. Yeah, it's called showing up at church. Sometimes it's really hard to do. Uh, a better one, if you don't mind me saying so, is showing up on time. There's a spiritual discipline that you're all so close to getting. If you're going to be here anyway, it's not that hard to work out how to be. When I'm in the nursing home, I would hate to think that I showed up to work on time every day. But I bet lots of people will be able to say that. If you can show up for work on time, how much more significant and important would it be to show up to something that is eternally far more significant on time. There's a thought I'm going to leave you with. Let's conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the work of your Holy Spirit within us that indwells us, that builds us up, that enables us to lovingly serve one another so that as your church we are increasingly sanctified and made holy. Heavenly Father, please, uh, as it is right uh, for our personal circumstances, uh, enable us to embrace spiritual disciplines, uh, perhaps including the discipline of, of uh, uh, making church uh, the fit where it should in terms of priorities, uh, perhaps the discipline of uh, delighting and trembling at your word by reading it on a regular basis. Uh, we commit these things uh, to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe we're going to continue in prayer... And Carol looks like she's going to lead us, am I right?